My name is Anthony Capazzoli. I am the host of the Dismantle Life podcast and I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict after nearly 40 years of addiction. I have been clean and sober for nearly four years and work hard to help others find recovery. Join me each episode to learn from my sober superhero guests and how they went from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of recovery. Dismantled Life can be found on Digitent Podcasts, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know uh, Denise pretty well. I know her fairly well. We've we met through Twitter and uh, just kind of connected that way through both being podcasters and that sort of thing and just started dialogue back and forth. And along the way, she said, hey, you've really got to talk to Anthony. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm totally down for that. And I'm really glad we started to connect. Yeah, me too. This is, it's great to have you on the show. And, and I, I know we had a, a brief conversation uh, before tonight. And I'm just got to say, I did a little research. I'm fascinated with the book topics and uh, just your effort to kind of, I guess, bring recovery into the hands of the many, I suppose, is the best way I could maybe put it. I, and I, I like your approach. I like your your ideas around um, the higher power and everything. It's it's super super interesting to me. And we so I'd like to talk about that today, of course, uh, or anything else you like to talk about in recovery to help the listeners understand that there's a lot more ways to approach recovery than what they might think. Maybe is the best way to start. Yeah, well, that that's my hope. And man, I appreciate what you're saying, because that that fits very well with kind of my mission. That's great. And my hope and what I'm doing is to be able to spread a message of hope for people in recovery. And part of that hope is helping people get past preconceptions, internal roadblocks, what they may perceive as being external roadblocks, and being able to just get as much of that out of the way, whether they're directly the person with the addiction or somebody who loves somebody with an addiction, be able yeah. to help remove those roadblocks in both cases so that people can, well, and they can feel better. So what are some of the roadblocks that, that you've seen or that, that, that maybe are most prevalent? Man, probably the biggest one, honestly, for a lot of people is simply misunderstanding what addiction is. Hmm. Because there's so many social preconceptions around them. I and addiction has been with us for all of recorded history and there's no reason to think that it just started magically 5,000 years ago right you know it's been around for the duration there's always been addiction and it's come with a lot of preconceptions because of assumptions around morality and choices and how people make choices and addiction we know now biologically is a disease of the part of the brain where we make choices and since we usually think of human beings their personalities, who they are, their character, as being more or less the sum of their choices, from the choice of how to yeah. cut and color your hair, you know, to how do you act, how do you treat others, what kind of profession do you choose, what kind of relationship you choose, they're all choices. Yeah. And so we mostly rate people based on their choices. And then here comes this brain condition that basically hijacks how we make choices. And so for the people around the person with the addiction, there's a lot of frustration and pain thinking, how could this person make these choices? There can be a lot of judgment. Well, people who make those choices are immoral. They have no willpower, things like that. And then we see in a really big way, people with the addiction really struggle with how can I be making these choices? How can I choose a substance or a behavior that's self-destructive, patently, obviously? How can I choose that over and over again? How can I choose that rather than being in loving relationships? And often we start out trying to juggle those things. Like I want the loving relationships. Uh, I want the money. I want the profession. And I also want this escape. But eventually it gets to a point where we keep choosing the escape, even though it endangers all the other things and we may you know, be losing them. So that preconception of if a person makes these choices that are so bad, they must be bad that is probably the biggest roadblock that I see because it comes with so much judgment and often for the person with the addiction, it comes with so much shame. Yeah. And that shame might be the impetus for somebody to start finding recovery, but it's not going to sustain recovery. In fact, eventually it's going to undermine the recovery. Yeah. So that's one of those huge misconceptions that I see, which can in turn get in the way of relationships. It can get in the way of engaging in recovery fellowships. It can get in the way of connecting with others and it can definitely get in the way of spirituality. Because if I'm such a shameful, awful person, how could I connect with a higher power? 
How could I connect with others? Hmm. It's interesting. I, I know at least addictions seem to start innocently enough and I, I'm not minimizing anything here. I mean, I'm a full-blown alcoholic, cocaine addict and cigarette smoker. So it, you know, what felt at the beginning, like just something you do, something that's easy, right? I mean, and it gets away from you pretty damn quick, but you know, and I, I do believe that it's a nature and a nurture for me. Uh, I think that I was predisposed, biologically speaking, probably to some of this, um, but I did make bad choices. And I, I, for me, my recovery, I have to own the whole thing. Like I, I can't, for me, this is me. I'm talking only about me. So please understand that. And uh, anyone listening, I am the kind of person I have to take absolute ownership of everything. Otherwise I'll never get there because if I give myself any wiggle room and it might not be my fault, I'm not talking about Atlas style holding all the blame of the entire world. I'm talking about me and I have to own and accept what got me there. Some of it wasn't my fault. Some of it was. And then I have to accept the process of recovery. And one of the things that helped get me through it helps get me through it every day, right? I've got positive routines in my life now. Uh, I've replaced those bad thought cycles that you talked about um, where I'm not embarrassed or ashamed of who I am, who I was. And that, there's a couple things in there for me that are really important. It took me a while to get to the point to have, to look back at my memories and not be ashamed of them. Uh, and that means a lot of parts of my life, childhood, uh, grade school, high school, there was a lot of that where I was just mortified of things I did and said in war. And I came to find out that that's all trauma-based. And as I'm working through all those things and have come to find ownership of, of my addictions in my own way through hard work, right? I didn't go to AA. I'm not a 12-stepper, but I work with people through the process and coming to terms and owning everything is a very important thing. And the shame, like you said, is huge. And I've tried to flip it on, on itself a bit where I like to call myself and anyone on my show sober superheroes because we do deal with a lot of stuff and fight the same battle with a different cape. And I love how strong everyone is that's been on my show. Some have faltered, some have relapsed, right? But I still admire them for what they have become or what they try to become and that's the part I think that everyone has to understand uh, as they're going through it. No matter how bad it's gotten, you'll never freak out another addict because we've all done a lot of weird, funky shit, <laughs> you know, chasing it, whatever it was. So, yeah, for sure. And when I look at that idea of like, so I, I take responsibility for my choices, but I balance that with how much we're motivated by things that we don't know or understand. And so in that sense, I try to move away from the idea of blame and look and say, what if no one was to blame? Like we don't tend to look at cancer uh, as like the blame game. Whose fault is it? Right. You know, is it the parents? Is it the nature? Is it the nurture? Any of those kinds of things. What if we step aside from that kind of thing and just say, okay, Here's a constellation of factors that tend to be at play. Is it partly genetic? Absolutely. You can find two people even raised in the same household who do the same things in the same way. And one of them can stop one day when they look around and say, wow, I need to be done with this. And then they're yeah. done. And yeah. I'm like, God bless those people. That's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. For sure. But then there's the I'm rest of us. Of I am not <laughs> who, one of you those. Know, you know, who can't, who find themselves like wanting with all their heart to stop, but can't until eventually usually at some point the fear of continuing becomes greater than the fear of stopping because stopping is scary when yeah. we've come to rely on something you know you mentioned how easy it is to get into it and how it doesn't start as a problem and i'd even say for most people it starts out as a solution yeah like this That's is the thing where good. i feel better and sometimes it's a social solution like hey we're all going to drink together or we're going to, you know, two sex and love addicts are going to find a relationship with each other. We want with that same intensity. All right, cool, great. You know, two gambling addicts might be like hitting the casino together. It starts out maybe as a way to bond with people, a social connection. But over time, it becomes more and more isolating for most people. Even if we're still hanging with the same crowd, we start to feel more and more alone, more and more within ourselves. And again, the shame really magnifies that now. I don't want to talk to anyone about it. 
So the thing that starts out as a solution becomes a problem. And then on top of that, we still have the original problem. So if I'm, for instance, using alcohol to relieve anxiety, the way my brain reacts to that is over time, I'm going to be more and more anxious without the alcohol. So now I have an alcohol problem. I have an exacerbated anxiety problem. So yeah. it relieved anxiety, then it made it worse. So when I go to get sober, well, I give up the alcohol. The anxiety is there waiting for me. And it's worse than it's ever been. And that's difficult for people. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important for people to be aware that support is available. Yeah. Because the statistics, depending on who you talk to, but we have roughly about a third of people who have a like qualify for a substance use disorder, if you want to get the technical terms. So in a scientific survey, about a third of the people who have substance use disorder can stop on their own. That leaves two out of three that can't. Yeah. But here's something that doesn't always get measured as much. That one out of three people that can stop on their own, are they as happy in their lives afterwards when they're sober? Are they as mm. satisfied with their lives? Do they feel as much of a sense of meaning? I'm sure there are some, but my own father actually uh, got sober the last two years of his life. And I didn't know that till like 10 years later. When my mom mentioned, oh yeah, no, he, he stopped drinking like two years. And that's like amazing. And being my dad, sheer willpower, yeah. sense of determination. He had a, a cancer scare, uh, which turned into a cancer reality and a different addiction when nicotine ended up killing him. But in the meantime, he quit alcohol. And you know, growing up with him, I never would have believed that would be possible, especially just doing it on his own. But I asked her, like, so how was that for him? She goes, oh, he was miserable. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but I, I get that. It, it, like a lot of people that I have talked to that are, you know, I get calls or emails because of the show and people ask questions and, and look for help. And the way I help them is get them in touch with a local chapter of AA or, or whatever it might be. Um, I, I don't really sponsor people. But one of the things I always say is that this is not for uh, weak-minded or weak-hearted people. It's a tough fight. It's a hard fight. It really is. And the I had to, and I still have to, be very careful. I had to retrain myself in simple terms how to be happy without the alcohol, the drugs, and the nicotine and the, the routine of that. And that took, and I'm still working on it, right? I still have my bad moments. And it's not even that I want a drink... Well, let me let me rephrase that. It, what it's the it's the missing of the process of the whole thing that's the fight for me sometimes. A mm -hmm. lot of times, not the missing of the cocktail or the line or the cigarette. It's the process of that shit, and mm -hmm. that makes me. It, it took a long time for me to, and I still work on it very very hard to stay clean and sober the right way by building a life that I'm not trying to run and hide from by holding myself accountable to a positive routine and the grind of that. And I'm going to borrow a term from Gary Vanderchuk here. Uh, I had to fall in love with the process of the grind. And that took a long time. It's been almost five years. And I'm the last year or so, I've really fallen in love with that process. And, and it's, I'm not, and let me just, for anyone listening, that it does not mean problem is solved. That just means that I've got a motivation and a process to continue to, to stay sober today. And, and that's what I had to do. And it, it's tough, right? I mean, I know that there's those stories of the Vietnam vets. I pick on them in particular, when they left Vietnam, they dropped the drugs, the alcohol and the cigarettes because their environment so drastically changed. And I know that you mentioned that, that some of that is, you know, is real. And then other people like me, like, I, it wouldn't matter, right? I would find what I needed whenever I needed it because that's just who I am. I am not wasn't an environmental user. I was chasing my own demons for my own reasons. And I know that, you know, so I think it's different for everybody. So that's why it's so tough sometimes to listen or talk to people because not being an expert, not being a therapist, although I've gone through this myself, it's tough, right? Because you, you try to figure like, there's stages of this, right? There's the beginning where you have to white knuckle the process. And then you really have to do the work of, of course, abstinence. I'm, I'm not necessarily yet a fan. And Casey, I know maybe we talked about this a little bit of the do no harm element where 
some people are able to have a little bit here and there and be okay. I am not one of those people. And I would never advocate that. I'm not against people to do it. I'm saying from it. And the other side is I, I, it's a hard fight. It's a, it's a fucking hard fight, but it's the best fight in the world. Like I can't, I would be fucking dead for sure if I didn't quit uh, and, and hang it all up. And that's why I'm here today. And that's why we're talking is not only because I'm alive, but because I believe that life is better on the other side of that shit show. And I think it can be better for everybody. I would never say to someone, your life will be better because of cigarettes, drugs, and alcohol ever. So, you know, um, sorry for the rant. I try not to talk this much. And I apologize. No, it's all good. Well, you're, you're saying great stuff. And something that jumps out for me is, is that, you know, when somebody generally has any chronic illness, which is what addiction is, is chronic in the sense that you're, we don't, generally don't say someone's cured. We could say someone's in remission. Yeah. So again, if you want to get technical, uh, as a therapist, a clinical social worker, I'd say if I'm working with a client and they come in with a substance use disorder, whichever substance, let's just say meth, and they get to six months without it, then we can now change the diagnosis to, you know, methamphetamine use disorder in remission. Nobody ever says it's gone. Yeah. We'll always say it's in remission. And just like cancer in remission, you might be in remission for the rest of your life, especially if, you know, it's going to be partly luck, but partly doing the right things. Yep. But if you look at a lot of chronic illnesses, like say diabetes, something like that, we're going to say, if you do all the things that are suggested, and by the way, the relapse rate on diabetes is about the same as addiction. Because for the same reason, people don't like to change their habits. Yeah. You don't like to change their behavior. They're like, I'm still eating chocolate cake. I'm not going to talk <laughs> to the doctor. I don't want to stick my finger. I'm going to take that insulin. Eventually, they might get to a point like, okay, sure, fine, I'll do it. And some people right out of the gate, I'm sure like, okay, this is what I got to do. And they follow all the guidelines and live a great life. Yeah. What nobody says to them is, if you do all this, you're going to have a super pancreas. It's going to be better than anyone else with pancreas. We're just going to say, hey, if you do all the right things, you're going to get like to the same baseline as anybody else that doesn't have diabetes. You just have to do a lot of extra work. Yeah. With any other mental illness, any other brain condition, we're going to say like, hey, if you take these medications, do some therapy, stuff like that, things will even out and you might do as well as the average person who doesn't have this mental illness. Then you find addiction and we say, hey, if you do all the things that are suggested, you're going to have a better life, more connected to yourself, more emotionally in tune, show up as the best possible version of yourself. Yeah. You might be better off than if you'd never had the disease in the first place. Like, we're sorry you went through all the pain, but the fact is you may have a better life. And I can say in my own recovery, that is 100% true. Same. Because there's so much self-exploration yeah. that I would never have done. And I did a bunch of therapy before I got in recovery. And it yeah. definitely benefited my life. I worked with a very talented therapist who about once a year would bring up addiction. And I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I think she was dropping these little hints. And I talked yeah, to her like, like, hey, uh, 25 years later. And I said, oh, hey, I've been in recovery now for all this time. And she goes, oh, good. Kind of <laughs> like, I knew it. <laughs> I'm like, awesome. back, like, man, you knew. But she was so good that she also knew that I wasn't ready to hear it. Like yeah. she dropped the hint. I wouldn't nibble. And so it wasn't until several, I think three years, at least after I finished therapy with that really talented therapist that I walked in the office of another really talented therapist who was in recovery herself. Yeah. And in like the first 10 minutes, she's like, so you ever heard of like sex addiction? And I'm like, no. Uh Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, so I, I directed these meetings for the rest of my life. Like, what are we talking about? And I didn't want anything to do with the spirituality at that point. I, I didn't know there was any alternative to 12 step. And just so folks out there know there's other programs like smart recovery is probably the biggest of the alternative programs, mm. rational recovery kind of folded into smart, not officially, but rational recovery is kind of gone. So those people are going to smart. It's the same basic therapeutic process. There's other ones like life ring, secular sobriety. There's a group called women for sobriety and research can show that these all do equally well. If the person walks in committing to sobriety, like I want to stay sober for life. Yeah. And they connect to other people within the group. So like getting phone numbers and talking to people in between meetings mm -hmm. and they volunteer to help out in, you know, where they can, whether it's mm -hmm. just like setting up and taking down yeah. the chairs, you know, wiping off the table or when the time seems appropriate, leading a meeting. 
And the research shows like each one of those things increases your odds of staying sober. But again, it does more than that. It's not just staying sober. Each one of those things, if you're doing it, increases your sense of connection, your sense of safety, connects you to other people. And connection is really important for human beings and mental health. Yeah. And all those programs encourage you to really explore yourself, even if they go about it in a different style. And they're not contradictory. Like I know a lot of people do 12-step and smart recovery. I actually work at a treatment center where we offer both. Yeah. And so you'll have a lot of clients who are like, oh, I'm just doing the smart or I'm just doing the 12-step. And then by the time they leave, like, well, I'm kind of checking out the other side of the fence. And we're like, that's really good. Because um, one of the pieces of research I was given recently, uh, and this was just another clinician telling me this, but I really respect them. So I'm pretty, you know, I just haven't read the study myself. But they said, you know, people that really get into 12-step recovery, there's like a 75% success rate. People that really get into smart recovery, is 75% success rate. People that do both have an 85% success rate. Hmm. Like, why wouldn't you do both? Yeah, you know, explore yeah. all the options, use all the tools, because all those things are going to help you to be a version of yourself you're really proud of, which, you know, again, most chronic diseases, you can't say that. It doesn't exist. No, I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think the people's fear sometimes about the programs, any program, is they don't know what the whole life is going to be like without their addiction. It's It's very strange to say that out loud sometimes, but they're afraid. And I was afraid, right? Because before I hit my rock bottom, which I bounced a few times, I hit it a couple times. You and me both. Um, yeah. I, I was always like, you know, I started going through that whole thing. Like, oh, this isn't so bad. I'm going to cut back a little bit. I'm going to control myself. What am I going to do if I can't go out and get drunk? Like I just insert excuse, insert fear ultimately of what life is going to be like without this. And what I've come to realize is I needed, not just because of my addiction, but because of me, I needed a completely different lifestyle to find out who I really was. Turns out I was always kind of the alcoholic, cocaine up, coked up life of the party. Turns out I'm really much more of an introvert at the end of the day. That sounds crazy. Even people that know me, um, I'm, I'm, I'm relatively introverted. Maybe a balance between extrovert, introvert, it depends, but I prefer to lean to the introvert, the reading, the cooking, the sitting quietly at home. And the, I, that's what I love. And what, what started to happen is I was having this internal identity crisis uh, in a lot of ways. And there was a lot of other things going on. I'm simplifying, of course, for the conversation's sake. But once I got through the process of letting the path take me where it needed to take me to get better, and, and I didn't hold myself accountable to... I have to get there in this amount of time, or I have to get there and feel and look like this. I just let the process happen. My only promise was I wasn't going to be a dick. And it took a long time to not be an asshole because I was, I didn't have my crutches, so to speak, mm -hmm. metaphorically speaking, to, to lean into, to make me nice or fun or friendly. And so it took a lot. And I still have my challenges with that sometimes where a little bit short-tempered or um, you know, a bad day will crop up. I've replaced it and it's probably an addiction. Uh, especially speaking to you, you'll probably pick this up, but I have my own, I've replaced the drugs, alcohol and nicotine with, with boxing and CrossFit and health and cooking. But I know who I am, right? And if I don't have process and routine, I will fail horribly. So I figure <laughs> that if I have to be addicted to something, I figure active, healthy lifestyle and routine is better than the alternative. And I am not minimizing because I know there are people that have real addictions tied to body types and uh, body dysmorphia and stuff. But for me, I have to, I'm addicted to the process of my routines and things, knowing that it probably could be a problem if I don't keep tabs on it. But I say all that because I know it took a long time and I'm always discovering new aspects of myself and my life and different things. And it's turned out to be kind of the fun part where I choose to look at things in a different way and say, and I, again, I'm going to be taking this directly from, from Tony Robbins, but I try to look at life as life is happening for me, not to me. And that kind of stuff, those little tiny phrases and approaches and the way I look at things make such a huge difference 
in making it okay to fail, to have a bad day, to be in a bad mood, as long as I don't let it like ruin my day and or ruin my children's day or my wife's day. Um, and that's the part. I, I guess I've gotten to the point where I'm okay with who I am in all my failings. <laughs> a, you know, I, it, it sounds so simple, but it's real. It's very real. Just being able to pull that off again. I mean, you know, there are very few life-threatening conditions you can have that can end up with that as a result. Saying mm-hmm. like, hey, you know, if I, if, I, if I not just dodge this bullet, but if I do this work, then yeah. I might get to a point where I love myself. Yeah. Whereas in my addiction, I could genuinely say like I had times when I loathed myself, when I just thought oh, like, yeah. how, who am I? How can I do these things? And then I turn around and do them again and just be horrified because um, it's two different parts of the brain. So when my limbic system takes over, it wants what it wants right now. That part of my brain doesn't really think more than about 45 seconds into the future. It can't. Right. So it wants yeah. what it wants right now. So when that part's running the show, my frontal lobe, where I reason things out, think about consequences and make plans, becomes subservient. And sometimes it just gets dragged along for the ride and sometimes it actively participates because like I can plan to cheat somebody, I can plan to fool somebody, I can plan to manipulate, I can plan to go meet somebody I shouldn't be meeting in a place I shouldn't be. Right. And then as soon as I get that limbic hit and that part of the brain releases control, then I can be immediately horrified and just think, oh my God, how could I have done this again? Yeah. Like, who am I? In recovery, I don't have that experience over and over again. <laughs> yep. I have sometimes the experience of going like, wow, who am I that I am uh, so giving now? Like, who have I become? Yeah. In who a really person, good, right? amazed kind of way <laughs> instead of a horrified kind of way. And like, what a trade off. And yet you're right. When people are coming into the process, I, I, I jokingly say, but it's also like a true joke that people with addiction are the only people I know that stand at a crossroads where like one direction is happy, joyous, and free. And the other one is jails, institutions, and death. We have to sit down and think it over. <laughs> no, you're right though. Guys, that's well, perfect. Us, that's perfect. We've never known happy, joyous, and free. That's perfect. And I, I suspect again, with the shame and having watched ourselves do all these things, suspect that maybe it's not for us. Maybe I'm not capable of that. Cause I think, I, I've seen this with clients. I, I first started out working in the field at this nine month to year long treatment center. Hmm. And we had one guy that had been like a year and a half, almost two years at one point. I mean, these are really tough cases. People that had often gone through treatment after treatment after treatment, nothing was working. Family was frustrated and they're like, you know, you're going to this place in Northern New Mexico and it doesn't even exist anymore. But it has some really cool aspects. We had some things we were terrible at, but we had some really cool aspects to it. Yes. And one of them was simply being able to stay with somebody for long enough for some of those lights to come on. And I remember saying to a couple of clients, like, if I could lift you out of your experience right now and give you a taste of what it would be like to be like, not just a year sober, but a year in recovery doing the deal, yeah. you would never want to be where you're at right now. But I understand that right now you can't believe hmm. what that would feel like. And you're probably afraid to try. And I will say, I distinctly remember having that conversation with a couple of guys and uh, they both at, um, I'm not gonna say because of that conversation, but probably within a month or so of that, they, they came up to me and said, you know, we are so sick of getting the results we get in our lives. We've like, kind of made this pact. We're just gonna do the opposite of whatever we think we would normally do. Yeah. Like what I'm doing is, is like working so badly. Working. I'm just literally going to do the opposite of my first impulse. And both those guys ended up completing the program. And yeah. uh, one I haven't heard from for a while. The other one, you know, I get little updates every once in a while and, you know, social media kind of stuff. And you see like, wow, he's doing well. That's great. All out of that moment of just thinking like what I'm doing doesn't work. I can't basically can't trust my own brain to make good decisions, yeah. but that glimmer of hope. And that's the thing, you know, where we started our conversation, like, you know, what's, what's my mission. It's that hope. Because being able to give someone hope, it could get better. If you do these things, it will get better. Yeah. That little thing, if somebody can grab onto that, and I figure by the time they're talking to me or listening to me, some of that hope's there. Like, yeah. I don't care how resistant someone is if they come to a treatment center or a meeting or whatever, how much they're kicking and screaming, I'm just here because of the court, I'm just here because of my spouse, I'm just here so I don't get cut off, whatever. Somewhere in there, there's a glimmer of hope. 
underneath all that defiance and anger and denial and all these things that we associate with addiction, underneath that is somebody who really believes like my life could be better, yeah. but they're kind of scared to believe it. Oh, and so yeah. being able to fan that little flame and encourage that hope. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of become the life mission because it's wonderful. Life's transformed. I, yeah, absolutely. I, I, so I am of the school that you, you have to want to change. You have to want recovery. Uh, you know, the external view aside, right. They, they can yell and scream and kick and jump up and down all they want. In, in defiance, I fuck this. I'm not doing it. But inside, if they want it, they can do it. They can get there. They can they can put on a production for anybody that's watching because they're they're doing that right for all those people that you just mentioned. But if they you 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 have to want it, there has to be a part of you, a big part of you that's gonna that's gonna fight the fight because like it's again, like I say, like it's a tough fight and it's an everyday fight. It doesn't. It, it's not always a white knuckle ride. You know, there are days that. Yeah. Sometimes a couple of days where I don't think about anything in recovery based in that regard. But then out of nowhere, for no reason, I'll get a, a smell or a song will come on or who the hell knows. I, I, I don't even really know. I did. And, and something will trigger, not negatively trigger, but trigger a memory. And I'm like, oh, shit. And then I, I have to be very careful and cautious of the, the next couple of hours because it can get away from me kind of quick. So I got to be careful of that. Uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm five years in, so I like to believe that I won't go running to the next, to the nearest drug dealer's house, but I, I still have to, I know who I am. I've got to be careful. Like I, I know that, um, I have to have exit strategies. If I go to parties that I, I have a planned time to leave, I can't, I'm not a, I can't just linger and hang out because that's when bad shit would happen for me. I, I need to kind of mentally say I'm here from seven to nine 15 or nine 30, I'm saying my goodbyes are on nine o'clock and nothing will stop me from walking out the door before nine 30, nothing. And to some people they're like, are you crazy? And no, I'm a fucking addict. <laughs> like I'm kind of, I can't put myself in the position to make bad choices that, that I have to remove that option from myself to the best of my ability. You can't get rid of everything, but that's a big thing for me. And I, I feel bad sometimes because my poor wife who is not an addict, um, has to leave early with me and stuff. She's cool. She loves it. She's happy to come home. She's like a, kind of an introvert like me in a lot of cases now. So it's fine. But that's the other side. You, 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 those are the things you have to make those kinds of choices. Because I don't know about you, but if, if I was just out on my own terms, I could come home whenever I wanted. Oh boy. Like that's a, that's a freaking disaster for me, man. Like I, I would for sure end up in a fucking dive bar with a pocket full of cocaine. No fucking question. No question. So I got to be careful. <laughs> well, it's good. Yeah, it's good to know your own, yeah, your pattern. Some people say it triggers. They're like, oh man, this is a trigger. That's a trigger. I'm like, dude, my brain is a trigger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. My, my brain has a default setting of self-destruct. So every day though, here's what's cool. <laughs> is this becomes the incentive good. to grow yeah. and work on it. Yeah, you're talking about like, you know, I had my routines in addiction. I definitely have my routines in recovery. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is where the spirituality came in for me is, and it was really over time, like not initially in recovery, but over mm. time. Uh, and because I was tired, not just of relapse, because I, I did a few of those earlier in my program. But at this point, you know, I can look back and say, okay, it's been, it's been over 16, coming up on 17 years, you know, since a relapse. Yeah. I've been trying to stay, you know, trying to actively work on a recovery program for 24 years. So you can do the math, like the first seven years were not like touch and go. I was always in it. I never was like middle fingers in the air. I'm out of the program. Just <laughs> I wasn't doing all the things were suggested. Right. But what I noticed is when I did and I was staying sober, but still trying to dodge the spirituality, what I didn't get was that sense of peace that people would talk about. And I'd go to meetings and people would be like, oh, man, the serenity these days. And I'd be like what are you people talking about? Right. I'm what so do you frustrated mean? <laughs> because I, I was that guy who was like the, the, you know, the brightest, smartest guy in the room, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and true. yet everybody else is getting this thing that I can't get. Yeah. And uh, I did have, you know, a sponsor or, you know, for anyone not familiar with that term, basically just a mentor in the program. Uh, and I was calling him up and like, dude, why is everyone else feeling better than I am? And people that don't have as much sober time as I do, they're not married. They don't have a kid. They don't have all this stuff I've going for me. 
why am I not feeling better than I am? Yeah. And he just kind of chuckled and he's like, well, so you ready to listen to some more suggestions? I'm like, ah. Not really, but fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So, which, so much of my recovery has been like that. Not really, but fine. Sure, whatever. And so I was like, are you willing to pray? And I'm like, ah, yeah. yeah, sure, I'm willing to pray. And it was one of the things I write about in, in the, the second book, uh, Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, yeah. is I would get on my knees and I'd be thinking like, this is stupid. I am talking to nothing. Like I am so wasting my time. And yet I was tired of getting the results I always got. So I was, I was kind of like the two guys I was talking about at the treatment center all those years ago. I was like, fine, I'll do the opposite of what I would normally do. Yeah. Let me just try it. What, what possible damage could it do to my life besides feeling a little embarrassing? And as I did it over time, it started to feel less and less embarrassing. It started to feel more and more like, okay, maybe there's something to this because I feel better. Yes. Do I need to know that I'm praying and a deity is responding? I do not need to know that. I just need to know on a basic level, when I pray, I feel better. Right. Eventually, I had a meditation. Okay, so now I pray and I meditate. And now, you know, fast forward a number of years and I could say, you know, I wake up every day, roll out of bed, hit my knees, pray, grab a couple of inspirational daily readers in my journal, read, pray, meditate, a form of uh, sort of journaling meditation prayer I'll roll into one called two-way prayer. I do that every day. Get all this really good stuff out of it. Do a little bit of yoga, a little light exercise. And ever since the pandemic, you know, rocketed us into the world of online and phone meetings and stuff like that. I'm on a meeting pretty much every morning. So by the time I leave my house, I've gone to a recovery meeting. I've read my daily readers. I've done prayer, meditation, yoga. I've taken care of mind, body, and spirit. Yeah. And what a great way to start my day. I never used to start like that. You know, I'd roll out of bed like anxious and trying to figure out like, how am I going to overcome the challenges of the day? And how am I going to impress people? And how am I going to this? And how am I going to that? And one of the things that the spirituality offers that I never even thought I wanted was a sense of peace. Yeah. Was a sense like I'm going to be okay. And I used to always live sort of swinging like a pendulum back and forth between I'm not going to be okay, or I'm going to make it, but I'm going to make it because I run harder, run faster, outthink, outmaneuver, outmanipulate. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And neither one of those modes of thinking led to the serenity or the peace. And to some extent, I can honestly say, I didn't even know that I wanted that stuff, but I can look back now and say, that's all I ever wanted. I thought my addiction was going to bring me peace. I thought if I have enough sex, enough affirmation, enough love, enough money, enough food, uh, and enough shiny things, yeah. then I'm going to be okay. Then I'll finally get to relax and feel peace. So my job is to arrange my life to have all those things in amazing copious quantities because no, nothing's ever going to be enough. No. But in my mind, like someday I'll get to this point where I have enough and then I'll finally be able to relax and be okay. I just never, I, I never even got anywhere near close enough to it to recognize that what I wanted all along was that sense of peace. And I just thought it could only come through my sheer determination and effort. But then I needed relief from that. And that's where the addiction came in. So between all those things, I can say now that, again, I'm not like walking on clouds every day. I'm, I'm on no sure. pedestal whatsoever, but I do get to walk around with a much greater sense of peace and purpose in my life. And one of the things I know now from studying positive psychology is that that sense of meaning and purpose is actually vital to feeling okay with ourselves. It's a vital piece of happiness. And, I, uh, I couldn't agree more. I, like, I think for, for me, surrendering was a huge deal. Like I can't, I can't do this anymore. I have a problem and just coming to terms with that and agreeing to kind of, I'm fighting the fight. I'm not going to win this fight going down this path and surrender. The spirituality piece was important for me to give up to a higher power and, and I pray to God. And, and I went through now, and I say this, and I'm, I'm only tempering this for listeners. It does not mean that I go to church seven days a week. I don't try to convert anybody. I am not out there, uh, I'm not a prophet. So th those are some of the things that people think are all associated with it when you're evangelizing every minute. That's, I don't do any of those things. In fact, I keep my spirituality kind of, it's close to my heart and personal. 
And that's just where I like it, you know? Uh, and I also realized that happiness, I already had happiness. I just had to, like you just described, I had to redefine and find out what really made me happy. Cause I too thought it was materialism, conspicuous consumption, yada, yada, yada. And I realized that it's none of those things. It's a simple life. It's a, it's a life built around serving my wife and my children in a positive sense and doing the best that I can for them and home cooked meals and spending my days with them. That was what made me happy not chasing and living up to, you know, compete with the Joneses and all of that nonsense. That, that was a big drag on me and that pressure made life terrible really terrible. That was a part of the void that I created on my own. It's very strange. And then when I realized I don't need any of that crap, that life just mellowed out. So it, it's been great. But I, I love what you said about the higher power and spirituality, because it's a very important component for me. And it's one that usually is makes people a little bit cringy. If there is an aspect of recovery that makes people a little cringy, that's probably it. Um, so I'm very cautious about it. And I tell them, you know, you'll go, you'll go through a journey and discover what that means to you when you're ready. Uh, because I don't, I, I, I don't feel comfortable telling them what it should be like. Cause I think it's different for everybody. Absolutely. And that was one of the things that I really tried to come across uh, as saying in the book um, was just that idea that like, and again, the book is really clearly not there to convert people that have no interest in spirituality. Right. And I wouldn't even say convert. I'm I'm not I'm out there trying to like chase people around saying you need to be spiritual. Right. <laughs> what the book is intended for is if you want the benefits of spirituality, yeah, but it's difficult for you. Here's some ways in. Here's some things that have worked for other people. Here's a lot of stuff that's got scientific research and backing to it. And of course, I learned a ton in writing the book. I went in and I would joke with my wife, like, I don't know how much I have to say here. Maybe this would be a pamphlet, <laughs> be a postcard. Uh, but you never know. But as I'm writing, I'm thinking, well, okay, these are, this is based on conversations I've had with people over the years around recovery as a counselor and a therapist, but also just as a guy in recovery, talking to other people who want recovery and saying like, here, have you thought about this way or looked at it from this angle or whatever? Um, but of course, as I'm writing about that, I'm researching and I'm discovering all this kind of amazing stuff. And in there, you know, learning things about prayer and where we can say prayer works for sure, where it, we can't say for sure it does much. And then even circumstances where prayer is a bad idea. Uh, like most specifically, prayer is bad for mental health if somebody is praying to a God or in a religious tradition that they think is against them. So like mm -hmm. the easiest example would be if somebody is attracted to people of the same gender and their religion says that is evil, and they're praying in the framework of that religion, then prayer is actually going to make their life worse. And so under those circumstances, I would honestly say, like, stop praying until you can revise your idea of who or what you're praying to. But we also find that prayer works even if you don't have a distinct idea of who or what you're praying to. Prayer works if, like, it has benefits, mental health benefits, physical health benefits, stress reduction, all kinds of stuff. Yeah better digestive health. There's all kinds of things you can say, this is associated with prayer. Uh, and it doesn't matter who or what you're praying to. It doesn't matter if you have no idea what you're praying to. The act of prayer does something. Oh yeah. I, I Like the I act believe. of meditation does something. Penitence uh, for sure. And so I tried to come up with a definition of spirituality as broad as possible and then involved for me, partly just thinking like, what is it? Like, what is it? What's the common thread everybody's looking at? And what I really found was it's this sense of connection. I can't even say it's a connection for sure. It's yeah. a sense of connection. If yeah. I feel connected to something bigger than me, whatever that might be. Yeah. Um, and there's so many different things that could fit in that category. So then if I say, well, what's a higher power? Well, then it's whatever it is that's bigger than me. But there's another aspect of the higher power thing which is higher power is also kind of where I go for solution. And so when people struggle with this idea of, you know, especially to hear it in 12 step recovery and step three, you know, made a decision to turn our will and our life over to a power greater than ourselves. We have to look and say like, well, man, I'm not turning my will and my life over to something that I don't trust or I don't know what it is. And yet at the same time, I look and say, well, dude, how many people have turned their will and life over to a drug dealer? 
<laughs> oh, yeah. or a drug or said like, you know, this, this gambling, this sex, this food, this substance is going to make me okay. Right. And so all we're really proposing is what if you picked something that was better for you? <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's something that might actually be on your side. Cause your drug deal, your dealer's not on your side. Yeah. The drug is not looking out for you. It does not have your back at all. Quite the opposite. It will <laughs> exactly. happily kill you and move on to the next person. Yes. It does not matter. What if we look for a higher power that actually wants to help you in some way, even if you don't know what it is, just that idea. And that's where I started out is my initial prayers were just saying, look, I don't know who or what, if anything is out there, but if there is, I'm only talking to the things that are like, have my best interest in heart and are on my side. Yeah. And are loving and kind and won't abandon me. Everyone else can just move along. I'm not even talking to you. I'm just talking to those things with, you know, whatever's out there that might have those good qualities. And, uh, and it That's works. super interesting. I, 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 I love the idea. And one other aspect just in, to close that I think is an important part of recovery. I'm just curious to get your take yeah. is I, I have to be careful of outside noise coming in, whether it's from bad attitudes, people talking shit, uh, reality television, chaos uh, of any kind, insert chaos. I, I have to be careful of uh, absorbing all that. I'm going to just call it like negative energy. And I have to keep it away. And I'm choosing to keep it away and remain as chaos free as I can uh, while still being exposed to other people, right? I mean, because there's, you, I, you can't control everything. But what I can control is I, I limit the amount of news that I read or watch. I mm -hmm. don't watch reality television the, the crazy ones. I only watch, if I do, it's a cooking or a baking show. One that's at least, I think, genuinely interesting. They're not getting drunk and fighting about who has a nicer car, stupid shit like that. Um, I've got to be careful of not taking everybody's opinion, whether they're friend, family, or an unknown person, their opinion of me to heart. In fact, it's none of my business what they think of me. That's how I kind of approach it. But the point of all that is, though, what are your thoughts around trying to not insulate yourself, but limit yourself to the exposure of the negative? Because I think that's such a huge deal. Like the positive energy is so important to me. And I, 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 re I will cut people out of my life completely if it's too much negative bullshit. Well, I'm going to say to that, the idea of what nourishes me, yeah. what feeds my heart, or some would say what feeds my soul. So I'm going to look for what are those healthy connections? Again, if I'm going to say I'm only going to turn to a higher power who is on my side and seems to want the best for me, well, then it makes sense that I'm going to try and turn to people that seem like they're on my side and want the best for me. Yeah. And I can find some of those in recovery fellowships, although there's also going to be people in recovery fellowships who are, you know, you know, on a bad trip, so to speak. Uh, but I find maybe a greater than average number in a, I'll look for like, what's a healthy meeting. Cause I, I went one time, I went down, we were on a kind of a volunteer trip down to the Texas coast. And um, we go down there to help some people that are really struggling. And I thought, Hey, while I'm down here, let me like see what kind of meetings they got. And I found there were two different fellowships going at the same time. Like they started at the same time. So I walked into one of them and there were like three or four people and they were just complaining about other people mm -hmm. and they're like oh Couldn't hey you're new here and i honestly looked around and said hey i'm really sorry i'm in the wrong room and i got up and i walked out yeah. and i went to the other room with the you know the other it was like it was like down the hall they had, were having a different meeting i'm like let me just see what the other meeting yeah I, I would do the same thing because I, I it's that sense but i've found that over time i've you know found and tried to contribute and be part of meetings where people are looking to really feed each other and really help each other and celebrate each other when they're doing well. So that kind of positivity. Um, I have to look and say like, yeah, there's a part of me that wants to keep up with politics and the news. There's a part of me that would love to be a social media star, all those kinds of things. But I know that those things are probably not going to end up feeding me and aligning with my values. So I get on social media. Um, partly, I mean, you know, once I wrote a book or two people are like you gotta be on social media you gotta get on this one you gotta get on that one i'm like oh, okay and a friend of mine who is uh, a savvy marketing guy and much younger than me <laughs> he's like okay okay man you gotta get out on TikTok." i'm like oh man i don't you know does that mean i have to like dance funny and like no no no, i'm not doing that like no dude just show up and be yourself go show up and say positive things and i thought oh you're allowed to do that on social media 
So I do that, right? So I'm on TikTok, I do little videos on Facebook, I post positive memes, things like that, try and create positive messages, Twitter, which has like the worst reputation ever for negativity. I only respond to things that are around recovery, where somebody seems positive, if they're like, Mm -hmm. hey, I'm so and so and I'm 20 years sober, and all they post is politics, I'm like, I'm I'm not getting involved in that. Yeah. But people that are talking about recovery, lifting each other up, celebrating each other, all that positivity, you can find those people anywhere, if you're looking for it. Yeah. And if you're willing to contribute to their positivity, if you're going to show up as a positive force yourself. That's what I found. So I'm on all the socials, but only looking for the positive stuff and only looking to put the positive stuff out. And I find as long as I do that, um, then it all kind of works out. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think that that is spot on. And I think what a great perspective to be positive on social media. What a change, uh, which I love. So Casey, just to wrap, because we're coming up to the top of the hour, how do listeners find you, buy your books, website, social, share everything? And all of this stuff will be in the show notes. So we won't have to write this down, but if you want to just say so, then I would appreciate it. Well, the easiest thing, uh, my one-stop shop, if you go to caseyauthor.com. So it'll lead you to a website called Recovery Tree Media. That's the official name of the website. But I thought, I wonder if anyone took caseyauthor.com. And they hadn't. So I snapped that up and had it redirect to my website. And then later I'm like, what if they misspell it? You go letter K, letter C. And I looked, well, no one had taken that one either. So you can put letter K, letter C, (laughs) Casey author. You can put C-A-S-E-Y, how I spell my name, Casey author. Or you can go to Recovery Tree Media. They all lead you to the same website. So I've got videos, books, our podcast, um, you know, different appearances that I've done, stuff like that. you know, if you want, you know, run down, if you look at it on, you can email me at addiction and the family. Our podcast is called addiction and the family. So addiction and the family at gmail.com. Uh, on Twitter, I think it's at addiction family. On TikTok, it's addiction and the family. Uh, you can see us on Facebook at addiction and the family. Um, all those things. But I'd say the website, caseyauthor.com, that's the easiest place to just kind of consolidate all of it. That's perfect. And I'll have that link in the show notes. So people can just, as you're listening, click on that and find you and everywhere that you are. Casey, it has been great to have you on the show. I've learned a ton. I appreciate your time and I look forward to reading your book. Oh, thank you so much, man. It's been a pleasure being here and just great getting to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you.